Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Thursday evening. We soon will be. And uh, see if I can do the Tefillah podcast this week. As always, with the um, backing and sponsorship of Mishpachas Stefanski. <coughs> this is Shabbos Agol. That's uh, a big nugget. Last year, I uh, put a lot of time, I, as I recall, talking about the famous piece of El Ruchas Agolabosa, which gives you the old Mishpachas Psachim in a um, poetic form, which is really cool. Uh, Demis is that all the piyutim we're going to say this week, for those who don't know it, this is Shabbos Agadol week, and that means that there is a piyut in the uh, in the Shacharis. I don't think in the Musaf. I remember, my shall we do the Nusuf Svar, so you know they say all that stuff. When I was a kid, we didn't, because I grew up Ashkenaz, but the good Lord has a sense of humor, and as I recall, it's only in the, in the uh, it's only, in, I think it's only in the uh, Shacharis, but but I want to talk about the first half of the poem. In other words, if you're in a shul that does impute them, and if you're not, I hope you'll be interested based on what I said, so just take a look from a scholarly perspective. You know, you don't have to be dumb about everything. And um, religious poetry is a major piece of Jewish culture, even if you don't necessarily recite it in your particular synagogue. And the reason I mention it is because when it comes to Shabbos HaGadol, what has been incorporated as the as the uh, uh, material of the piyut is a Yosef Tovelum, the famous rabbi you never heard of, who was a generation before Rashi. So he's mamish and early Rishon, early early Rishon. I would say he's a contemporary, roughly, of Rabbeinu Geshem, a tiny bit younger, and then uh, there was the overlap. And so here we're talking about Ashkenaz, way back baby, when um. No, there's the 900s, early 1000s. Rashi's born in 1040. Uh, at that time, uh, we don't know a whole lot about the formation of Ashkenazi Jewish culture, even though that is the culture that most of the people, I assume, who are listening to this, not the Spartanum, of course, but I assume most people listening to are Ashkenazi by uh, ethnicity, and therefore your roots go back, one culturally anyway, a thousand years and more, and now I'm taking it back more. Uh to the time before Rashi. And uh, the main headquarters was concentrated in the Rhineland, along the Rhine River. And by that time, they already had yeshivas, believe it or not. This is quite early. Um, this Shabbos, is Shabbos Agadol, I hope to do my Shabbos Agadol speech. It's going to be long. At four, it starts at 4.18. So it's about three hours. But we're starting 4.15, 4.18. For those who are listening in, in, in the area you want to come at my show. And uh, we will be uh, talking about the roots of a lot of this sort of stuff. And uh, let me put it this way. The, 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 the uh, exact nature of the formation of the Ashkenazi culture has been ma- a major area of speculation, as you know, by Professor Chaim Salvechik. That's how he wrote his weird but uh, ingenious article about what he regards as the possible 
a third yeshiva that would account for the Ashkenaz uh, uh, uniqueness. Uh, no, the Sura Pumadisa and and uh, Bologna, or you know, and, and somebody. So Sura Pumadisa and Tells. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Uh, I mean, two thousand years ago, and uh, it's a guess, of course, and uh, it's a little bit like it's it's like a Talmudic from version of the Hobbit. You know what I'm saying? Not that I could stand Tolkien, but whatever. Now, uh, the culture, therefore, we adhere to is one that evolved over many centuries. But in its origins, we don't have too much information. Part of it would be um, the Piyutin that we're going to be talking about in a second from Yosef Tovelum or Yosef Bonfields. Bonfields means a good son, Tovelum, you know, who lived, obviously, in France. But was... But when I say France, the border is always changing. So Ashkenaz means northern France and western Germany. I'll use round figures, just approximately. Let's say from Paris to the Rhineland, to the Rhine River, Paris to the Rhine River, roughly. That will give you an idea of what we're talking about. And uh, the Rhine River, for some reason, became the Mokum of the Yeshivas. Uh, you know, mines, worms, and so forth, the Ramizo. That's where Rashi went to Yeshiva when he was a Bukhar. And where he learned in Kolo for a little while when he was married for a little while, told the money ran out and he had to move home and go into business. As you know, that didn't stop him in learning. And uh, there already was a rich culture. That means if Rashi was born in 1040, he's already going to yeshivas and this and that and the other. There was a rich culture. The hero we're talking about today, who's the author of the famous piyutim that we, excuse me, that we recite on Shabbos Agarol, Yosef, excuse me, Yosef Tavellon, um, was a big macher in the culture. Um, big rabbi, as we would say today. It's always a mazel. Rabbi Yosef Tovelum was a Rishon. He was a big guy. He wrote Pirushim on Shas. Maybe even on, on Yoshalmi. It's not clear to the scholars. When you go to, when, when Rashi went to Yeshiva, there already existed a certain form of Rashi, if I can use that terminology, or a contrast. And Rashi took that country's back home with him, and then he worked on it and made it his own. He changed it and touched it up, and this and that and the other. You and I can see that country's today in what they call in the Vilna Shastra Ben Gershom. Like, if I remember correctly, you see it in uh, Bavavasa, for example, or Pirish Magensa. Meaning, that's what emerged out of that yeshiva culture as a commentary to explain the Talmud Bavli. So, our hero played a major role in all that. The funny thing is, his Gemara writings have not survived. His Shalos and Shubas have not survived, except two or three of them. You can find one in the Maim Rottenberg, you know, things like that, or Zeruah. Uh, his, uh, you know, other halachic works have not survived. So because of that, since we live in a yeshiva culture, you haven't heard about them unless you're a Moscow. The Moscow made it their business to know who the Pythonim were. The uh, from you know, didn't care to, uh, to one degree or another. So, there's for some a lot of his Putin also haven't survived, but the ones for Shabbos Agudal somehow or other got into Main Street. And what's fascinating to me is here's a guy a thousand years ago and more, and he's trying as far as I can say I can only tell you my opinion as I always say, he's trying to see why is it Shabbos Agudal, what is the role of Shabbos in the Shabbos Agudal part? That's it's an old question. Uh, why do you call it Shabbos Agudal? It should go by the 10th of Nisan. You know what I'm saying? You've, you've heard that before, right? 
the Nerd of Yehuda, you look in the Nerd of Yehuda, in the, in the Tzlach, and if you get the Nerd of Yehuda Haggadah, or one of these other type things, I'm a fan of Nerd of Yehuda, you know. I did my uh, uh, my graduate work on him. Uh, you can see, he says, why is it Shabbos? I go, why in just 10th day? There must be something special about Shabbos. And he gives his his uh, cute varts on it. But our hero, who lived mamish eight, nine hundred years before the Nerd of Yehuda, is trying poetically, that's how I see it, to explain what Shab- what's the Shabbos part of Shabbos Agoro. And as far as I can see, um, in my decoding of the pute, uh, it has to do with the fact that the Jews already had Shabbos as the day of rest when they were slaves in Egypt, based on the Medrash that says that Moshe Rabbeinu told the Egyptians, you've heard this before, that you know they need a day off in order to rest and recuperate so it'll work better the other six days a week. And if you ask me which day I would suggest <laughs> you know, to give them the day off, again, not not for religious purposes, but just for whatever, I would pick out of random uh, Saturday. <laughs> yeah, it's like that. I uh, know stories of guys from the Army in World War II, you see Mr. Reich and so forth. Same thing, you know, everybody in the unit, like, got a day off. From guys, ah, oh, pick Saturday. <laughs> you know, uh, that's why... I remember years ago in Israel, it was a big fight because they wanted to do a certain day that you couldn't drive or something like that. And the Chilonim said, make it Monday or Tuesday. And the from said, why not make it Saturday? They said, be fiadati. It'd be a uh, religious coercion. And, you know, the guy says, then end of you got to take a day off from the driving anyway. Why not make it Shabbos? But, you know, you know how that works. So let's get down to business. Uh, in the Piyutin that we're going to recite, it's like two halves, A and B. The second half is the part of is the uh, recitation poetically of Mesechtis Pesachim. The first uh, four uh, chapters and the last chapter. Uh, in other words, you skip the Karm Pesach stuff because they didn't have Karm Pesach in the, in the te- 11th century. Um, but the other stuff they had. But that is not the totality of what the man wrote. He also wrote this kind of majestic stuff which for those weirdos that are into Piyutim, and there aren't many, is rather famous. Elohim B'Tzarcha HaKos Pasros. It's kind of famous. Uh, Davidson has in the Otsar Hashira and places like that, but there is not that much scholarship on it, which allows me to speculate as I want and I have my opinion, as I said. So, basically, if you're looking at the uh, Piyut, which means this is Chazar Sashatz and Shachris uh, on Saturday morning, this week. Uh, in my show, we're also going to have Unifruf, so it's going to be an interesting situation. Uh, Menachem Gunsberg. So, um, we're going to see here uh, how he weaves it in. There's two halves. The first half is a regular poem, and then the second half is where he, where he builds up into the halachas and, and then jumps right into it. Okay? With the kind of Ovo Bechilo Teva. He, he, uh, what's the right word, parallels, the kind of thing that you and I are familiar with on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Yeresi, Bifzosi, P, Siach Lahashko. Oy, I am trembling as I approach the Divine Presence. How can I dare to open my mouth? Blah, blah, blah. So that's what you have over here. Gashti, Lerombo, Sagla, Rejus, Dogmer, Bobo. You know, I uh, uh, approach very hesitantly before I recite the halachas. Now, this is a golden age of, of, of Putin. Well, not really. There was big fights um, between him and Rebel Yoa Coin. In the youth of Rashi, 
when he before he was born actually, because Rashi is born in 1040 and this guy died in 1050. So um, generation for Rashi, the old question is it appropriate to have piyutamen? If so, when and where? Now Chazara says shots no. But, you know, they used to have big fights about whether you should stick in the chakras or not and that sort of thing. Is it a hefzik? I'll say it again. Chazar says shots. Eh, everybody davened anyway. You see, that's the feeling. Uh, to do it mamish in the uh, Krishna and so forth, that was more controversial. So, what does he say over here? Um, this is Shabbos Hagarol. The day we recall the beginning of the Yitzhak Mitzrayim. The beginnings of the beginnings. Elohim B'Tzarcha Hakos Pastros. That we like to call each of Pastros. That's a uh, uh, a word you find in the Tanakh. Uh, that's Egypt. When you started getting ready, I love this, to bust their fortresses. Because Hashem, we're told, uh, you busted the, the you know, everything, uh, the Mechilta the says that the gods, the statues melted, and the fortresses melted, and so forth. And so, he wants to share Midrashic stories in the davening. That's the basic idea behind the Ashkenazic Piyot. Uh, and Kaliri in that regard also. So the Hamunam doesn't know the Medrash stories, but you can uh, poetically recite them. Now, does the Hamunam understand the poetry? I don't know how that worked, but since I knew the communities were always very small, Libby Imerly, that um, they would have a session and explain the Piet before Shabbos when it was recited. When I say Libby Imerly, this I knew for a fact that for the Hassam Sofer's time, in the Hungarian yeshivas, which followed the Hassam Sofer model in the 1800s and 1900s, and he was from Frankfurt, he definitely, every time, you know, they said all the Piyutim, because they're Oberlanders, and any time there was a Piyut coming up, the Rosh Hashiva, the Hassam Sofer, would, you know, have a shear or two, in which he went through all the words and what they mean and explained the background. Now, it's true, that's for the Bnei Torah and the yeshiva guys, but I'm convinced that he was just carrying on an ancient custom from Frankfurt, because he's from Frankfurt. And this probably goes back, in my opinion, all the way to the Taka, the 10th, 11th centuries, when they started disputing and they would explain what's going on. So without any further ado, Elkim B'Tzalch of Hakos Pastros, when you came to Bimake, the Egyptians, Bitakta Chelem Mimtzirelos, and you busted their armies, and you were about to melt their fortresses, Go'alta Amcha B'Nevel Kastros, when you were about to bring your people out, B'Nevel Kastros, with tambourines, well, I mean, it's true. Miriam does that a little bit later. No, this is the clever part. Did you ever ask yourself the following question? Where did she get a tambourine? Right? So she immediately grabbed tambourines and so did all the others. And they started dancing and playing the instruments. Where the heck did they get those things from? Uh, it wasn't gold and silver. The answer is they must have left Egypt. You see how the Python's working? You know, if you're smiling now, that's what he wanted. <laughs> Get it? Oh, good point. Yeah, good point. They must have left Egypt. But naval Kasros. And here is what a Ashkenazi Python does, not a Sephardi. You invent words. Derartum. You drawed them. Draw, of course. Draw, you draw. Cross them, draw, Lord, so hold the You You liberty them. Or as we would say, you emancipated them. Derartum. Right? It's not a real Hebrew word. They've rocked them, and you meant uh, uh, like a bow rare. Now, what's shot uh, bow rare? Well, uh, 20% left. You see, 20% left. The other 80% didn't leave. They died in Makas Choshech. So, the process of bow rare went, out, went, went along. 
So he's giving you, you know, the full the full business because you, the leader, are supposed to listen to what's going on over there. And uh, as he puts it over here, Casilla starts to man fine flour. So the twenty percent who left were the from hardcore, as we'd say today. He got to get him on Pivesis. and the guy on Pivesis is the name of a town in Egypt mentioned in the book of Yecheskel, and you're just supposed to know that. And so he got to get Hamon Pivesis. You threw the Hamon of the Egypt into the gay, into the valley. Meaning when the Red Sea came down upon them, baby, they were at the bottom in Dreher, as they say. Okay? Fenikosal arts between the Pivesis. Ooh, okay? And they lay on the ground. Betrian Nechbes is full of wounds. So, <laughs> this is the Jewish love of the Nekama. Because, you know, what do you see in Ozzy Asher? This one was like lead, and this one was smashed like this, and this one was like this. So, you sit with contemplation. It's like somebody who went through the concentration camps, and now you see Hitler and all the others. Not just dead, but covered with smashed up wounds, and this and that and the other. They want that. Znucha Zarcha Badam Mispossesses. And now, the one who is Zanoach, meaning the one who had been abandoned, the, the despised Jewish slaves, right? Zarcha. Now they're shining like the sun. Badam Mispossesses was a different dom. So it's a wonderful juxtaposition. By the time of Kriyas Yamsu, I know the Kriyas Yamsu had a week later, but come on, don't go like that. So by the time we finish, there are two sets of bloody people. When, when Egypt is full of bloody people, everybody has blood. The difference is, the Egyptians are covered with bloods of makas and wounds, and uh, you know, uh, fatal uh, you know blows. The Jews are covered with dam mila and dam pesach. You know, if, if they're walking out and there's blood on their shirt and on their shoes, all the rest of it, it's a different type of blood, like we see in the Haggadah, mitzvah b'damai chayi. You understand? So. Uh, that's what he's evoking over here. I'm just trying to show how rich the material is, okay? And and don't worry about the fact that they're that they're dirty, because I'll tell you right now, they were gihuts. Remember, like in, in, in the, you know, gihuts, like in Tishabal. They've been laundered and washed, okay? So in other words, let's put it this way. They were covered with blood, but by the time they leave Egypt... Maybe Hashem, you know, gave them a free uh, laundry. There are Midrashim that say that when they went through the Red Sea, you know, they went in 12 rows, and they got goodies along the way, and part of it is that they got laundry, okay? So they were covered with blood, which was something to be proud of. The Dam Mila and the Dam Pesach were simonim of Emuna, But don't worry, they got Rechitza and Tichbosis. They got wash and laundry. And now he gets to the Shabbos part, as I see it. Before they finally got their final Yushbas, their final cessation of labor, the, the, uh, the uh, uh, to be exact, before the bitterness of their tortures ceased, Yeshua had already happened. Okay? For God's beloved. Where do you see that? Where do you see that? Kitarta klil and nefesh meshivas l'she'ovar kidamta matan shavas. That, in other words, you already had prepared a crown which refreshes the nefesh meshivas and that crown was l'she'ovar kidamta matan shavas. Now, 
Some before some, I I remember I've seen in the past. I don't remember was a from guy or not. I, I used to be into this stuff many many moons ago, before I was married, and uh, I'm the weirdo. What can I tell you? And uh, you know, someone learned like this that mystically, Hashem prepared the Shabbos for Klal Yisrael before it went. But a better way of understanding it is what that that Lishavar Kidamta Man Shabbos. He already introduced Saturday as a rest day from the time of Moshe Rabbeinu. Now, uh, what this means, of course, is this is Moshe A and not Moshe B. Early, when he was a prince of Egypt, he was a macher in Egypt, so he suggested to the Egyptians under a certain story that they should give him Saturday off. So if you were a slave, assuming that the story is true, because this is a piece, assuming the truth is true, so you were working in tit and yavin and blood and all that for six, seven day, six days a week. You worked like a dog, mamish, and now came Saturday, now came Shabbos. I'm sure they slept all day. I mean, I get that. It wasn't a Shabbos like we understand it. But the Python is saying the following. Listen very closely. The Jews already had Shabbos. But this Shabbos of the 10th of Nisan that immediately preceded Pesach was Shabbos HaGadol. You get it? They always had Shabbos, but this is the Shabbos HaGadol. Because here they moved from simply a day of rest, which was vitally important for the crushed slaves, you know, Let's not make light of that. There was like a mamish, you know, uh, a salvation. Uh, even if they slept all day from sundown to sunup, they needed every minute of it. So it's not to make fun of that whatsoever. You understand? They, they weren't sitting around having, you know, Suda Shabbos and singing Kamakadish. Uh, but um, this Shabbos, the one we're celebrating this week, was more than that, right? Now the spirit was the spirit of Romamus. Now, to be perfectly honest, the Jews had stopped working hard about six months or so, according to tradition, about six months or so prior to the Yitzhak Mitzrayim. After all, slavery is an economic institution. The whole point of slavery is to get free labor. There's no point doing free labor if the economy breaks down, if the infrastructure isn't there. Um, to use modern terminology, what's the point of having a bunch of slaves if, you, if if your farm is 10 miles away from here and every day you drive them on a bus to the farm and make them work from sunrise to sun up on the farm? But what if the, it, what if the, what if the bus breaks down? Then, they have a day off. Well, in Egypt, the buses broke down. In other words, the animals were killed, the hail came, the dumps were day, Kingdom and Arv and all that business. So if you ever think it through, it has the effect of, what shall I say? It has the effect of um, of uh, destroying the economy, the economic infrastructure. And so Lamaisa, the Egyptian farmers and Egyptian uh, taskmasters, stopped torturing everybody um, and making them work already quite a while before they actually left Mitzrayim. Now, they didn't know what you and I know, which is, that the slavery wasn't, uh, the Makas wasn't simply some temporary aberration, and maybe tomorrow the Egyptians will kill Moses, and they'll go back to square one. They were obviously afraid of that. But as you and I know, it never happened. And so Lamaisa, now Shabbos HaGadol, because they're moving from a passive type of Shabbos, which was vitally important, to an active Shabbos. The active Shabbos was what connected with the Karm Pesach. Mamish getting ready for Yitzhak Yisrael, the Gula, etc., 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 and that's why he says, Kilalta, Kleel, the Nephim, Peshivas, 
Lishaover Kidam to Matan Shabbos, right? And um, the, the poem continues because that's what they used to do with the Ashkenazi poetry. They would break it up and put one stanza or two by Mogan Avram, and then the second stanza by Machai Mesim, and the third one, and so forth. And so it continues. Uh, it's the same poem. It's not a different author. It's the same guy all the way through. Mimazgir Asir when the prisoner, you know, Mimazgir uh, Asir, the, 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 the prisoner gets out of the jail. Remember, Yosef, Yosef Atzadik was put in the Mazgir. When he went Lenovish, then when he got free, so Nisnoseis Neis, Betfias Refesh. Then, Nasatli Recha, Nasatli Snoses, these are allusions to Tehon. Nasatli Recha, Nasatli Snoses, Nasatli Recha, You remember that in the 60th Psalm, I think. Uh, for those who were Tfias Refesh, who were, who were stuck in the mud until now. So now he's evoking the picture of the people getting out of the mud pits and getting ready for freedom. See, Gavtom Chok Magovanofesh. You see? You uh, gave them a power. Again, how? Margovanofesh. Because you already had Shabbos. No, let's put it this way. What, what he's suggesting, and it's very interesting, is the following. Uh, to me, it's very interesting because my father was in the concentration camps. Suppose, and all this from a poem, he makes you think. Suppose they had worked like dogs until uh, you'd see some triumph. So let's say they worked seven days a week um, up to a day when all of a sudden this guy Moshe appears and says, hey guys, we are out of here. Let's leave now. That's not the story to happen. What if it happened that way? They would be like the DPs. You know, those are skin and bones. They can't move. It's too much. You get what I'm saying? They literally were, by the point, what happened when the American army liberated the camps in 45? Most of those people died after the liberation. Either because they gave them food that they couldn't handle, or Stalin the Veltrain, they were too far gone. My father, me, myself, and I, my father survived because they had to pick a couple of people who they thought are rescuable, the other's going to die, and fortunately uh, he was picked <laughs> to one that they'll go to work on. And even then, I don't know how much he weighed, it took a month until he recovered, because they made an effort, um, a medical effort. So, that's not what happened to Claudius Rowe. Why? First of all, they had the day off. That's the, the, the Shabbos. And they gave him a certain rest. And therefore, it enabled them physically. You understand? In other words, when they worked during the week, all they ate was matzah, and you know, it's a, and it's a lousy diet. Uh, but on Shabbos, then they had a better food. Uh, if the if the Neshe Yisrael, the Noshim Sikonius, you know, really extended themselves, as we're told, and all that stuff, you can be sure that they did their best to give them whatever nourishment possible, at least one day a week. Now, I'll tell you something. One day a week, big deal. If you would ask my father or people in the concentration camp, I'll give you a, a regular meal one day a week, three squares a meal a day. They would consider Ganadin, you see? And so, see, Gavtom Chok Mergovanovish, you strengthened them with your law that they had a day off on Saturday. Aruch Tchilim Chilonovish. You prepared it should happen beforehand, Lemeshivas Novish, to give them a, a chance to recuperate a little from the slavery. So they were physically fit to leave Egypt when the time came. 
And then he gets a little poetry over here. The real shot was told by Mora. In other words, that's when the, 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 the laws were, were finished. So when I say Shabbos was day off, I don't mean that the slaves in Egypt had uh, Borer and Bishol and 39 Mlochah, none of that stuff. It was regular day just to sleep and eat for somebody who's basically in a concentration camp type situation. Right? That's it. When they got out and they came to tomorrow, then they started getting halachas because now you're in a different Shabbos. Now you're, so to speak, not just a negative Shabbos, which was very important that day off, but now you're in a positive Shabbos in which you have to in, the put in all the halachas and all the laws to create the right atmosphere in the day, day of Kedusha. Kaviyas Kedusha Now only when they got out of Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea, they were introduced to the to the Shabbos of Zachar Shamar, Zechir Shema, Ron Lahavik Besod of Zimra. The idea to observe it with Ron and Simcha, Zmir Shabbos. That's a different thing altogether, right? I would call that a negative Shabbos versus a positive Shabbos. Again, I don't mean negative in a bad way. Uh, a Shabbos where you where you simply don't have to work, uh, and 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 what do you call it? Versus the Shabbos. In which you have a meal and zemiras, and you feel something, and you feel the neshama yisera, and so on and so on and so forth. If I wanted to give a dvar Torah, which is not my point in all this, I would say zacha represents, um, in other words, the first ten commandments recalls the creation of the world. The second commandment is is shomer zimashikhi That was a shabbos we were calling by the ten commandments when they were simply glad, you know, not to have to work that day. That's all. Um, and Shvatu Gedol sees the Ratzon, and to make it perfect, you punish the Egyptians, right? Shifrata Oel Bayitzon. I love that phrase. You busted their tent, it's not it's not going to be put back together again. Okay? You busted your tent, not going to do anything together again. To Uvim Pasu, the disgusting Egyptians, Pasu, were done for, and the other guy, when they heard about it, froze because we say in Oz Yasher, Oz Nifalufi, Edom, you know, uh, whatever it is, Tipolei Mimosa Fakhan and so forth. Okay? So, what happened, just, I'll, I'll just, I'm running late. I just share with you two of the stanzas of like four. Okay? And uh, they're all from the same author. And what is happening over here? In the 10th century, and Probably there was a special tune, I assume, you know, way back then. But aside from that, you know, so people could memorize it. But aside from that, you were turning Shabbos into a teaching lesson, but in a very pretty way, in a liturgical way, in a musical way, in a poetry way. And you're reminding yourself of Shabbos. I got all more. This is Yosef Tavelmo. Here's a big resho. It's not simply saying, oh, it was Shabbos and the Third We're taking back to what the Germans would call the Ur Shabbos, the original Shabbos. Which is, as I say, referenced in the second version of the Ten Commandments, So, um, you know, Shomer, not Zohar. And then when the people are in Shabbos, it's, it's evoking um, these things, and you get what the idea of Shabbos Hagadol is, as well as the other Shabbos in there. Now, the sad fact is that maybe in the first generation of two or three, they knew all this stuff. As time went on, it became part of the Ashkenaz situation to just do these things by rote. 
you know, the Yekas and the Oberlanders and so forth and so on. I get that. I understand that. Uh, and people missed the meaning of it. They missed the meaning, which is a shame. Because, you know, you can learn a lot. And it evokes a special kind of historical consciousness and atmosphere for the from Jew. Uh, and therefore, I conclude by saying, uh, you pro- you may very well be in a show, but they don't do any Pietam on, on Shabbos ago. And that's fine with me. Like I said, I never did it before I came to my show. But is this could die, I would say, to uh, get an art school sitter. I'm sure it's in both. And uh, certainly in this subscriber, I'm sure in Nashkanas also. And look at these short poems, because what I'm saying today is not a long poem. And see what you get out of there. And um, it'll be, I think it'll be totally cool. So once again, with that, I hope you have a good Shabbos Agal. For those who are interested in, or in my proximity, so my uh, talk is going to be, it's a long thing. It's going to start at 4, 15, 4, 18 to be exact. Because uh, Mincha is at 7, 18 uh, at my show. And uh, for everybody else, uh, I just want to thank Mishpach Stefanski as always. for. And this is, a, a, if you look into this, I think it will enhance your tefillah this week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.